Second Chronicles chapter 28 as we continue our journey through Second Chronicles together. I'd like to, Lord willing, tonight look at chapters 28 and 29 and certainly chapters in contrast as in chapter 28 we see one of the bad and ungodly and evil kings in the uh, time of Judah's reign. And then chapter 29 begins to give to us the life of Hezekiah, who was one of the good and the godly kings. And we'll see the next few chapters beyond that actually cover the life of Hezekiah. But boy, quite a contrast you'll see between these two kings. The last king that we looked at, the king of Judah, was Jotham, which was in a very short chapter of chapter 27. And Jotham was, again, uh, kind of one of those individuals who was just a real good and a godly man, but kind of flew under the radar. He's probably not a name that's real popular in the Bible, but uh, though he kind of uh, lived in some ways just in this simple, uh, informal, quiet way, the Bible has nothing negative to say about him. It tells us that he became mighty and he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. And we have nothing negative about him recorded of his failures or his mistakes. He was just someone who, again, just in, in kind of a quiet way under the radar, was faithful to the Lord, served his generation well, and did what God called him to do during his time on the throne. And so we go from this, again, very good, godly king, this righteous man who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, to now it tells us at the end of chapter 27 that after he died, then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And chapter 28, verse 1, tells us of his son Ahaz, who you would think, okay, wow, you had a godly father, you had a great upbringing, uh, you had a great example of how to live for God and serve God and do what's right in the sight of the Lord. And after that great example and probably a godly upbringing, it's almost difficult sometimes to read. Chapter 28, verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. So, again, we oftentimes have seen in our study through the kings uh, this pattern exhibit itself where you could have a very good king who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, who certainly was uh, giving a great example to his children, reigned in a way where he showed how to serve the Lord and, and to care about the things of God. And yet, despite that godly upbringing, that godly pattern that existed, uh, he could have a son that would come up after him who would have absolutely no interest and desire to walk in the ways of God, would exercise his free will to just live rebelliously against God and to do what's sinful and selfish instead. And Ahaz is another one of these examples, again, just epitomizing the reality of free will and that people make their own choices and that we can do everything possible and we should as parents. And I think that influence makes a difference uh, to raise our children in the ways of the Lord, to raise them in the, you know, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to train them as the Bible tells us to. Uh, and certainly we should do that as the word of God tells us to. And there is a lot better chance, a lot higher probability. I certainly believe it's why God tells us to that they will walk with the Lord if we give them that good seed of the word of God and we give them a good righteous example to follow and show them what it means to love and live for the Lord ourselves. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, there is no biblical guarantee that just because we serve the Lord that our children will. Uh, we don't have that promise uh, because every person has been given free moral agency to make their own choices 
and they may choose to reject and rebel against God, maybe for a time or uh, maybe continuously, and we really have no power or control over that. We see that dynamic exercise itself, and again, kind of sad, certainly it's unfortunate to see such a good heritage unwinded now by this next son, Ahaz, but uh, he was he was quite a rotten apple, this guy we're going to see. Uh, and he wanted nothing to do with the ways that his father had exemplified for him. Now, on the flip side of that, we'll see right when we get to Hezekiah after this, that here Ahaz, he's a rotten apple. And you would think, man, I can't imagine what his kids are going to be like. I mean, if he lived like that, what in the world are his kids going to be like? And Hezekiah shows the other side of the dynamic of free will, where he says, I am not going to live the foolish, selfish, arrogant, rebellious, ungodly life that I watched my father live and make a mess, I'm choosing to do what's different. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to chart my own course and break the cycle. And Hezekiah is one of the good and godly kings, probably one of the uh, men who brought the greatest spiritual reforms in the time of Israel and, and Judah's history. Uh, so again, we see both sides of this reality that even if you have a bad upbringing and maybe you're exposed to a lot of rotten stuff, doesn't mean you got to live that way. I mean, you can claim to be a victim your whole life long, and I certainly I realize those things have their influence. I'm not diminishing it, but it does not prohibit you from living for God and establishing a different family and a different lifestyle and saying, I don't want to follow the patterns of my parents. I want to live different. I want to follow God. I want to serve God. I want to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. You have the freedom and the power and the opportunity to do that. And what a wonderful thing that God gives us that opportunity despite what our upbringing has been. So Ahaz, unfortunately, just begins, we're going to see, to undo all the good that was done by the prior two kings of Judah who were good kings that did what was right in the sight of the Lord. It tells us, verse 2, describing this, for he walked in the ways, not of the Lord, but in the ways of the kings of Israel. And again, at this point, the northern kingdom of Israel, this is the time of the divided kingdom, they had fallen far into idolatry. They were serving other gods. They had turned away from Yahweh God. And it says that he walked in the ways of those evil and wicked kings of Israel. And he made molded images for the Baals or the Baals, as we would call that. Again, Baal, remember, was the Canaanite god uh, of fertility and intellect, some believe. And, and he's entering into idolatry and worshiping uh, foreign gods, idolatry to the Canaanite god Baal. He also burned, verse 3, incense, it says, in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And look at this, verse 3, and burned his children in the fire. So participated even in child sacrifice, uh, murdering, putting to death his own children. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, and he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So again, what this is describing is that he practiced and participated in a lot of all the idolatrous activity of the people that were in the land prior to the Jews being given the land of Canaan by God, the Canaanites and the the Jebusites and the Perizzites. And you remember all these different people groups that lived in the land at that time. And these were the idolatrous practices that they were involved in. And many of them involved worshiping gods of, of fertility and these kind of things, uh, whether it was Ashtoreth or Baal or Molech as described here, um, which would involve child sacrifice. And these were abominations and things that the people prior to Israel living in the land 
would do as well. And these things would go hand in hand because as you worship these fertility gods of Baal and Ashtoreth, they involved a lot of very sensual and promiscuous activity, sexual immorality and and quote unquote religious rites that involve just free sex and no restraint of your lusts and your passions and so forth. But of course, when you worship uh, sexual pleasure, you end up, if that's the idol in your life and what you're participating in, uh, with unwanted pregnancies. Uh, and unwanted children, and unrestrained sex, and unrestrained, you know, uh, control of the desires sexually resulted in a lot of pregnancies and a lot of children that they didn't want. So Molech, as it describes here, verse three, as they were burned their children in the fire, and that's what's referred to there. And Leviticus chapter twenty describes specifically that this was what the god Molech worship was about. It was basically a molten statue. That they would put a fire under and they would heat up and either they believe in the arms or the, the, the big mouth or belly area of it. They would get it molten red hot and then they would beat on drums real loud. And it was basically a god to sacrifice their children to. And somehow that was an offering under their god. So this rather went well together. You'd worship one god. You'd indulge your passion sexually. When you had unwanted pregnancies and unwanted children, you would just then justify, okay, well, we'll just offer those unwanted children as a sacrifice to Molech. Uh, And so they would literally offer children and descendants uh, right in the fire of the god Molech. And again, we can look at that, and quite honestly, uh, it may seem a little bit more sterilized in the way that we do the same thing in our culture today. That goes to show you nothing's new under the sun with humanity. Uh, We think that, you know, pro-life and pro-choice issues and abortion dilemma and and unwanted pregnancies that result then in a crisis situation where a woman decides to sacrifice her child or she's convinced by the father of the child to sacrifice the child for convenience because it's an unwanted pregnancy. That's a current problem. Uh, That's been a historical problem. It's been something that's been a continuous ongoing struggle for 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 4, I mean, these are, these are issues that were happening in the days of ancient Israel, uh, this same type of a thing. We may do it in a little more seemingly refined way in our mind, but at the end of the day, it's the, the same type of activity that's taking place here. So he's indulging all these idolatrous practices, sacrificing. Verse 5 says, Therefore the Lord his God, in light of this, delivered him, into the hand of the king of Syria, and that would be King Rezin at this time. And they defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. That was the capital of Syria. And then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with a great slaughter. And the king of Israel, verse 6, refers to him at this time was Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and it says that he killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, again, the Holy Spirit tells us, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. So take notice what's happening. Because they are turning away from the Lord, because they are in an idolatrous activity, giving their devotion to other things, the Bible's going to say turning their back on the Lord and giving their allegiance to other things, they basically make themselves vulnerable to being conquered by their enemies. And they begin to suffer defeat in their lives. It tells us in verse 5, very clearly, it says that the Lord delivered them. 
The idea is that when they were faithful to the Lord, the Lord took care of them. He protected them. He kept them strong and healthy. But when they began to disobey the Lord and go outside of God's design, in a sense, God said, okay, if you don't want to serve me and you don't want me to be involved in your life, then I'll, okay, I'll give you what you desire. And God pulls back his hand. And so God says, then I won't protect you. And I'll let you suffer the consequences of your own bad decisions and your own sinful behaviors. And so God let them become vulnerable and they suffered defeat from their enemies. It says that God was actually the one delivering them into the hand of these other nations, allowing them to be subject as a discipline for their own disobedience to the Lord, both to the king of Syria as well as to the king of Israel, Pekah in the north and notice the great slaughter that's described there in verse six i mean it's something you almost can read and gloss over but when you really contemplate it it says that pekah the son of ramalia killed 120,000 men in judah in one day a hundred and twenty thousand soldiers dead in a battlefield in one day that's staggering that's staggering the tremendous loss but again the further we go into sin, the greater the losses become in our lives personally, in our families, among a nation. I mean, 120,000 lives lost as they're being conquered because it says they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Verse 7 says, Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Massaiah, who was the king's son. So he loses one of his own sons as the result of his disobedience and that's awful sad to have to have such a loss in a family because of rebellion against the Lord. It says, Azrakim, the officer over the house also, and Elkanah, who was second to the king. So kind of the vice president or second in charge was lost as well in the battles. In verse 8, the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they also took away much spoil for them and brought the spoils back to Samaria. So as the northern kingdom comes down, engages together in this battle, it tells us in Isaiah 7 and other passages that this was actually a joint military effort between the Syrians and the nation of Israel in the north, between uh, Rezin and Pekah, they made this joint military endeavor. It says that the children of Israel in the north, the northern kingdom, not only did they defeat them tremendously, but it says, verse 8, they carried away hostages. It says wives or women and children, 200,000 hostages, prisoners of war, bringing them back to their land together with the spoil that they stole from their own brethren, sadly, as the time of this civil war existed between the nation of Israel, between the southern kingdom and the north. Verse 9 tells us, but a prophet of the Lord was there. That is why these things were happening, whose name was Obed. And he went out before the army that came to Samaria. Now he's going to give a word to the northern kingdom of Israel because of the tremendous severity in their cruelty that they've just exercised against the people of Judah, who, though they were in disagreement with this time, they were their brethren. These were fellow Jewish family members. The nation was in a time of civil division. There was a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom, but these were their own family. And they were tremendously severe in their cruelty to them as they were being used to exercise discipline. They just went way overboard, and God's going to address this now. It says, but a prophet of the Lord came, went out before the army and said to them, look, verse 9, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah... He has delivered them into your hand. In other words, it was an act of God's discipline. He used them to discipline the people of Judah. 
But, he says, you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. In other words, you went above and beyond in your rage what was necessary. Yes, discipline was necessary, but he's saying you carried that to tremendous excess. You did what was right, but you went way overboard in severity. You got way too cruel, way too harsh, the prophet is saying. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But are you not also guilty before the Lord, your God? Now hear me, therefore, and return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. So the rebuke comes from the prophet and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Lord was allowing you as an instrument to discipline them for their sin and their wrongdoing. But you became way too severe in the discipline and correction that you brought down and enjoyed it just a little bit too much. And he says, and now you're trying to subject them to make them your male and female slaves. And again, this was direct disobedience to the word of God because Leviticus 25 said that among the, the people of God, the Jewish people of Israel, they were not to take their own people as slaves. Uh, they could, in a sense, become indentured servants to serve for a time to work up a debt, but they were never to take them and put them to forced slave labor. And so they're, they're going above and beyond not only the scripture, but they're showing intense uh, kind of cruelty towards them. And he says, have you forgotten, verse 10, you're just as guilty before the Lord, and yet you're being that severe on them for their sin and taking it to such excess. And now God is rebuking them, saying, you have gone way too far and enjoyed that correction way too much. And look, by way of application for us, sometimes we may be in a scenario where maybe the Lord may use us to bring a word of, you know, assistive correction in someone's life, maybe to help someone that's in wrongdoing or maybe to, you know, correct them for their sin. Maybe God uses us genuinely as an instrument to rebuke somebody or to try and talk to them and bring a word of correction. Maybe somebody fails and we need to deal with that. But the problem in our humanity is for some peculiar reason, sometimes we just like it a little too much. And there's something in our nature that actually finds it to some degree sometimes enjoyable bringing down the correction and, and kind of, you know, putting them in their place. And, and there's some sick, distorted thing within us that in our flesh, when, when someone else sins, we actually can end up sinning ourselves in the way that we're trying to help correct them or get them out of their sin. And, and God doesn't want us to ever do that. That's why Galatians chapter 6 tells us, if someone's overtaken in a trespass, they failed. It says, you who are spiritual, that is under the influence of the spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, lest you yourself also be tempted. The idea is we can also be tempted to sin when we're helping someone else with their sin. And one of the ways we can be tempted is we're too severe with people. We're too cruel. Okay, speak a word of correction, but you don't have to be that mean about it. You don't have to push the issue that far. At a certain point, lighten up. Show a little grace. Have you forgotten that you fail too? That you do dumb things too? And sometimes we can go overboard and, and God says to the people here, have you forgotten that you're guilty? What do you think you're doing? And so now God is upset with them and he says, the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you because of the excess severity so verse 12, interesting, when this word of rebuke comes from the prophet Obed, it says some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Berechiah, the son of, and yes, I'm not going to pronounce the rest of those, stood up against those from the war. And he said, you shall not bring the captives here. Well, don't bring these 
prisoners back, he says, we already, look what he says, verse 13, we already have offended the Lord. You indeed intend to add guilt or add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men, interestingly enough, they were responsive. Look at this. They left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and the, all the assembly. They, they left the spoil there. They said, yeah, we shouldn't do this. I mean, to take all their possessions away. I mean, what are we thinking? And verse 15 says, then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives and the spoil. They clothed all who were naked among them. So those who were humiliated and disgraced because of their situation and failure. They, we don't want to disgrace them more and, and just make them feel more humiliated. And again, sometimes we, it's almost like we, we enjoy rubbing people's nose and stuff sometimes. I mean, it's not, I just don't, just love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. It doesn't strip people bare and make them more humiliated. So here it says that, you know, they clothed the captives and tried to give them some dignity back, though they had just failed greatly. They dressed them and gave them sandals and food and drink. They were being kind to them. Doesn't the Bible say the goodness and kindness of God is what leads a man to repentance? So they show some compassion in the midst of their failure. It says, and they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys and they brought them to their brethren, Jericho, the city of Palms, and then they returned to Samaria. So interesting, they were responsive to the prophetic word of the Lord. They took the rebuke seriously and, and they made amends for where they had been erring and being too severe in the situation. And at that same time, unfortunately, verse 16, their king's heart wasn't in the right place, Ahaz. At that same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. So as he's being conquered, he's looking for some help. And again, he's turning not to the Lord, but he's turning to the avenue of the flesh, looking to the king of Assyria to come and bail him out when he's being disciplined by these other nations. For again, verse 17, the Edomites had come and also attacked Judah and carried away captives. So they're being conquered by one enemy after another. And when you start turning away from the Lord, that tends to start being the pattern. Things that you were conquering all of a sudden now start to reconquer you again. And you start losing ground. And this enemy begins to reconquer in your life again. And so now they're carrying away captives, the Edomites and the Philistines. Verse 18 as well, invaded the cities of the south of Judah, taken Beth Shemesh and Aijalon and Gadaroth and Soko with his villages and Timnah with its villages and Gimzo with its villages. And they dwelt there. Verse 19 tells us again why, for the Lord, notice, the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. Interesting, because of the immoral leader they had, God brought the whole nation low through the immoral choices of an ungodly leader. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Well, I read that verse there, verse 19, he encouraged moral decline in the nation. You know, it's sad enough when somebody lives in moral decline themselves. But God have mercy when we have someone who is leading in a role where they're encouraging moral decline in the nation. And we've had a president or two in my time that I've watched do that. Where they're not just these are my moral convictions, they actually are encouraging moral decline in the culture. Lighting up the White House with rainbow colors to encourage moral decline. 
That's encouraging moral decline. That's an agenda is what that is. That's encouraging moral decline. That's a bad thing when somebody has power and position and they're not just living immoral, but they're encouraging with their power and influence people to do so. I mean, just so sad. And this is what Ahaz was doing. And as a result, God was humbling the nation. And Tiglath-Pileser, says, king of Assyria came and then distressed him. And he did not assist him. So no matter which way he turns, he's not finding help. For Ahaz took part of the treasures of the house of the Lord from the house of the king and the leaders. And then he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. So he's trying to even hire out mercenaries to get help. He's taking money from God's house and giving it to people. And that's not even working. It's basically he's throwing money at things that aren't even bringing any help or profit. And again, that happens in government sometimes too. We won't talk about that. Verse 22, now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became, you would wish it would say, increasingly humbled and broken before the Lord, right? I mean, that's what we want to read there. In the time of his distress, he finally broke. He finally cried out to God. I'm at my wits end, God, please. But look what it says. In the time of his distress, he became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is, in the time of his distress, God was letting him experience distress, and he just got more stubborn, more hard-hearted. And again, that's the tragedy of a free will of a human heart, is that a person can continue to just resist and be stiff-necked and rebel. And this is what Ahaz was like, this wicked and hard-hearted man. For verse 23, says he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus which had defeated him, saying, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. So he thinks to himself, hey, their gods seem to help them defeat us. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I should try worshiping their gods. And so as he makes that effort, it says they just became the ruin of him and all Israel. And again, when we endeavor to do those things that are outside of God's design. And so uh, it doesn't work serving the Lord. I'm going to try this or pursue this or all that does is, is it just leads to our own self-destruction. It just leads to ruin. It never works out. It says this just led to his own personal ruin and it affected the whole nation. If that weren't enough, verse 24 says, Ahaz then gathered all the articles of the house of God. He cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger, never wise, provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of the acts and all his ways from first to last, indeed they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel and Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel and Hezekiah, his son, then reigned in his place. So by the end of his administration and by the end of his life, he had gone so far away from serving the Lord and had turned so far in rebellion and entering into idolatry and all the pagan practices that literally verse 24 describes he just literally ransacks the temple of God. He doesn't just worship other gods. He does everything he can to shut down the proper worship of God. That's what verse 24 is describing. It says he, he cut in pieces the, the articles, the furniture of the house of God, and he shut the doors of the house of the Lord. 
He literally did what he could to close down the worship of God, of the one true God. And I tell you, folks, that is exactly what the devil's agenda is. He wants to shut down the true worship of God. And he has no problem using individuals to whatever degree he needs to to try and do that. So at this point, God's house has been forsaken. It's been ruined. You know, it's just been kind of, you know, damaged greatly. The doors are shut up on the temple. And here again, as I said, here's this bright spot. Now, you have this wicked administration for 16 years, and you're thinking, oh, my, what's the next one going to be like? What is one of his sons going to be like? Well, amazing. Talk about the grace of God. Look at verse 1, chapter 29. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. This is the son of Ahaz. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Interesting, his mother seemed to have come from a godly heritage, which perhaps this was where some of his influence came from. Though dad was living wild and ungodly and evil, mom was holding the line spiritually. And apparently mom holding the line spiritually had a good influence upon the child. And so Hezekiah, this great godly young man, it says, verse 2, he did what was amazing right in the sight of the Lord. He said, I'm not going to do what's wrong. I'm going to do what's right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. David was the man who, remember, had a heart after God's. Verse 3, in the first year of his reign, right away, he got to work with his spiritual reforms. In the first year of his reign, look at this, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord or reopened, the idea is, the house of the Lord, and he repaired them. So here he comes to the throne Got a brand new administration. What's he going to do? Okay, well, let's get together all the military leaders and talk about the strength of our military or who are all the economists? Let's get all the economists in here, talk about the economy, all the things he could have done. But his first item on his agenda when he came into his role of power was until this nation gets right with God, nothing's going to come together. And the first thing he does, it says in the first year, in the first month of his reign, he says, this is my top priority. We need to get the worship of God happening sincerely again. We need to do whatever we have to do to repair the house of God, reopen the doors of the Lord's house and get people seeking God again. Because his mindset is if we do that, then everything else will begin to fall into place properly. And again, what a wonderful heart that this man Hezekiah had. Again, 25 years old. Amazing, 25 years old, but such a heart for the Lord. He opens the house of the Lord, begins repairs, and he brought, it says, verse 4, the priests and the Levites. He gathered them there at the East Square and said, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves. The idea is set yourselves apart, purify yourselves. He's saying it's time to get right with the Lord, sanctify yourselves. Get right and pure before the Lord. Sanctify the house of the Lord your fathers and carry out the rubbish. Interesting word, carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Again, they had just trashed the temple. They had disgraced it and just you know, completely disregarded any sense of sanctity for the temple. We're going to see that it was just filled with trash and rubbish and it just had been ruined on the inside. So he says, look, Get your hearts ready and your hearts right before the Lord. He calls those who should have been serving the Lord to kind of, you know, get their focus back on the Lord again, to get themselves ready and prepared. And he says, and start getting 
everything that's defiled God's house out of it. He says, remove the rubbish. That is, remove the defiled things, one translation says, from God's house. You know, sometimes that needs to happen. You know, the Bible tells us that Peter says that judgment begins at the house of God. And sometimes there's rubbish in God's house. Things that shouldn't be in God's house or among God's people. Sometimes there's defiled things in the lives of God's people that are things that we would expect in the world, but somehow end up creeping their way into the church. And sometimes God needs to bring a cleansing. And God needs to work to begin to remove those things. And again, whether we consider the temple of the Lord, the the church collectively, which the New Testament speaks of that, but the Bible also tells us in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 that our individual lives as Christians, that we're now the temple of the Lord as well because the Holy Spirit, the presence of God dwells within us as a Christian, as a child of God. And so sometimes when there's a, a move of God's Spirit and a work of the Spirit, and that's what this is, Hezekiah pictures a spiritual renewal, a spiritual revival, or a reform. He says, we need to get things back right with God. What's the first thing on his heart? He, he says, we need to get rid of everything that's defiling us. Get rid of what's defiling us. And sometimes we got to get rid of what's defiling our own personal temple and get the rubbish out of our life and, and do what we need to to discard it from our life. Sometimes we need to a work of God's cleansing among the church. Sometimes some trash gets into the church that shouldn't be involved in the practices or the kind of maybe the existence or environment of the church. Verse six, he says, for our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. That's called confession. They have forsaken him. They have turned away from their faces from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turn their backs on him. So he doesn't pull any punches. He says, look, they have forsaken God. We've turned our backs on God. We have forsaken him. They also, verse 7, shut up the doors of the vestibule. They put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. So they completely ceased from worshiping God the way they were supposed to. They weren't offering incense unto the Lord. Incense in the Bible is always a a picture, typology-wise, of of prayer, of prayer ascending up to the Lord like incense. He says they're not offering burnt sacrifices. The sacrifices were their acts of worship, offering of consecration. So there was no worship. There was no entering into the house of the Lord. People had kind of abandoned God's house. There was no more interest in the house of God anymore. Who wants to do that? I mean, there's a great reality show on television. Why go to the house of the Lord? And, and God's house was kind of just shut down and neglected and people weren't participating in the worship of God the way they had should been. Verse 8 says, therefore, in light of these things and the fact that we've turned our faces away and turned our backs on God, therefore, verse 8, the wrath of the Lord has fell upon Judah and Jerusalem. That's why our nation is struggling and in a mess, he says. And he has given them up to trouble. God says, if you don't want to serve me, I'll let you have the results of not serving me, which is a life of constant trouble, to desolation and to jeering, that is people mocking. And what what happened to these people that were once so great and strong? For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. So our, our families are falling apart. People are mocking us now. Our nation is the laughing stock, he says, of the other countries and and our families are a mess our wives our sons our daughters our families are falling apart the fabric work of our nation the family is just in complete mess they're prisoners and captive to things they shouldn't be 
Verse 10, he says, but now it is in my heart, he says, to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. He says, I, I want to be under God's wrath. I don't want to be under God's displeasure. And I love it. As the, as the leader of the nation, he says, I want to make a covenant with the Lord. What's a covenant? A commitment. I want to make a commitment that I want to honor, a commitment that will be upheld. That's what a covenant is, a contract. And he says, I want to make a commitment unto the Lord. You know, man, what a wonderful thing to see a leader stand up and say, I want to make a commitment to the Lord and to want to encourage others. You know, strong leadership breeds commitment. And here he says, I'm ready to make a commitment to the Lord that we might have his pleasure upon us once again. My sons, he says, verse 11, giving an exhortation, do not be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and to serve him, that you should minister to him and burn incense. So again, he's speaking to the Levites, those who were called to be God's servants in the temple worship, the priests, and they had been neglecting their spiritual calling. They had not been fulfilling their God-given roles and what God intended for them to be doing just out of negligence, laziness, irresponsibility and he says to them look it's time to stop being negligent you are not exercising your god-given calling he's saying you are being negligent now and he says the lord has chosen you the lord's chosen you he wants to use you he wants you to be serving him not serving yourself and serving the ways of the world he's chosen you stop being negligent he says don't don't set aside your calling he's chosen you to stand before him and to serve him that you should minister to him and sometimes we need that reminder because sometimes we can all get a little spiritually negligent would you agree i know i can we're kind of you just you kind of settle in and, and just find yourself getting a little complacent. The Bible tells us in Romans that we're not to be lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Remember in Colossians, when Paul was writing, he spoke to that man or and, and he said, hey, t- you know, tell him t- to get back to doing the work that he's supposed to do. He had become negligent and he'd kind of shrunk back. And he's saying, look, like Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift of God that's within you. God's called you to serve him. Are you doing a thing God's called you to do? Have you become negligent? If you have, stop being negligent and get back to serving the Lord. Engage and do those things that God wants you to do and begin to minister to the Lord and for the Lord. Let your life be useful to him. Verse 12, he says, and then these Levites arose. That is, they responded. They took up the calling. Mahath, the son of Amasiah and Joel of the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of Merai, there were Kish, the son of Abdi and Azariah, the son of Jahel and of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zimmah and Eden, the son of Joash and a few other names there of the sons of Heman and of the sons of Judathan. And verse 15 says they gathered their brethren. They sanctified themselves. That is, they're being responsive now to what God said to them. And they went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. I like that. They, here's how they were responsive to the word of God. It says they went at the commandment of the king. Listen, our king has asked us to do something. He's the king. We are servants. We're submitting to his authority. We've got a word from the king. And you know, when you've got a word from the king, if you're a servant of the king, then just submit to his authority. The king has given us his word. We are going to carry out the words of the Lord. And they begin now to cleanse 
the house of the Lord. It says, verse 16, the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron there uh, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And they began to sanctify on the first day of the month. On the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. So they spent 16 days. Shows you what a mess the temple was in. All the debris and the junk and the garbage that had gotten into the temple. And what a mess it was in as they're doing this kind of renovation process they go in, but I love it. I mean, you want to talk about when the spirit of the Lord moves on someone's heart to finally engage what God wants them to do. This wasn't, no, okay, well, maybe in about 16 months, we'll get back on track. In 16 days, in 16, they got radical. Because when the spirit of the Lord moves on someone's heart, it's amazing what radical obedience can, and in 16 days, radical obedience, they got serious. They said, look, no joking around, we're cleaning up the temple. We're going to get serious about this. And you know what? When God calls us to, to clean house, if you would, would to God that it would be like that? Oh, well, I'll eventually get cleaned up 16 months from now, 16 weeks from now. How about 16 days from now? Let me try better. How about 16 hours from now? Just stop <laughs> by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just seek the Lord for change and clean house. And do whatever needs to be done. Be zealous about it. I love this. Just they, they just come together collectively and they begin to sanctify the house of the Lord. And in 16 days, they have got the temple cleaned out. And verse 18, they go back to report to the king. And they said to him, we have cleaned all the house of the Lord. Again, I like that. All the house. They didn't leave some closets with some stuff in them. When you're going to clean house, don't just leave a closet. Because the devil from that closet will start to take over the room again. You just clean everything. Complete cleansing. Cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar, the burnt offerings with its articles and the table of showbread with its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified. And there they are before the altar of the Lord. And King Hezekiah, verse 20, in response, rose early. He gathered together the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord and they brought seven bulls, notice, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats. Again, the number seven was a number of completeness. The idea is fullness, seven days in a week, seven notes on a scale. So they're bringing just a complete act of worship and offering, it says, for the sanctuary. And he commanded the priests and the sons of Aaron to offer them on the altar so they killed the bulls, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. And they killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. So they're reengaging now in their worship as they once were before, bringing offerings to the altar of the Lord. And brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly and laid their hands on them. And the idea is when they would lay their hands, verse 23, on an offering, the picture is that of transference. The idea is with the sin offering, they would lay their hand upon the animal as a substitute. And the idea was a transference of guilt. You would lay your hands upon the animal confessing your sins 
And the idea is, as the guilty one, I am transferring my sins upon this innocent substitute, which will now vicariously die in my place. And so I've transferred my sins. And of course, it just was a a picture of ultimately what would happen with Jesus, is that Jesus would take upon our sins, our sins upon himself as the innocent one, and the innocent would die in our place as the guilty individuals, the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they're again making these offerings. Verse 25 says he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So they're now reinstituting the worship again in the house of God as David originally instituted it in his day many, many decades prior. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded them to offer burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpet and the instruments of David, king of Israel. So notice, as they're making offerings, burnt offerings, it says, as they're offering those burnt offerings, the song of the Lord also began. Again, remember the burnt offering was the offering of consecration or the offering, we might say, of dedication, full dedication. In the burnt offering, the entire animal sacrifice would be completely consumed on the altar. You wouldn't partake of any of it. The whole thing was just completely consumed and dedicated to the fire under the Lord. And it was a picture. Lord, that's what I want. I just, I want to completely consecrate everything over to you. I don't want anything anymore, Lord, of my life. I want you to completely have full control, consume my life, take all of it. And here's as an act of worship, as they give these offerings of dedication and consecration, notice what comes together with that. In response to that very action, it says, they also began to sing the song of the Lord. This worship begins to happen. And notice how the worship happens through singing, through music. Again, we see says verse 28 so all the assembly worshiped the singers sang and it's good when the singers do the singing right the singers sang the trumpeters sounded now i don't know how you do that but again those are musical and know how to work melody and harmony can make that sound good maybe sometimes it covers up if the wrong singers are singing right the trumpeters cover all this continued until the burnt offering was finished And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. This beautiful scene. Moreover, Hezekiah, the king, and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph, the seer. Now, that's a reference to the Psalms, to use the words of the Psalms to sing to the Lord. So they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshiped again i I love the the references here using the psalms to sing unto the lord that's what the psalms were through david through asaph they were spirit inspired poems or words that were used for prayers or for praising the lord and actually to be used in singing psalm 51 created me a clean heart O god renew a right spirit within me we we sing that song it's a song, could be set to music with melody. And this is what they were being commanded to do by their king. Their king was commanding them, it says, to sing praise to the Lord. And I believe that our king, the king of kings, commands us to do the same thing. 
to sing praise to the Lord. He doesn't suggest it. He commands it. So if he commands me to do it, I should do it. To sing praise to the Lord with gladness, that is, enjoying it and bowing our heads in reverence to the God that we're worshiping. And Hezekiah answered and said, now that you've consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near. Notice again, and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. Almost like we talked about last Wednesday night, right before Thanksgiving. Bringing sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. That's exactly what we shall still be doing today. Coming into the house of the Lord, bringing sacrifices and thank offerings of praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord. Bringing it to the Lord as an act of devotion towards him. It says, so the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings and as many as it were of a willing heart brought the burnt offerings and the number of the burnt offerings, which the assembly brought, it says, was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. Yes, that is a lot of animals. All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord and the consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. Verse 34, but the priests were too few. They couldn't manage this tremendous offering of animals for the altar so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves, for the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. The idea there is, the reason that the Levites predominantly had to assist and the priests could not keep up with the workload of the animal sacrifices as the people were coming in great enthusiasm with their worship is because it says the, the priests had not prepared themselves. The Levites were actually more diligent in keeping themselves right with God and prepared to serve and in step with the spirit where the priests had become negligent. And so until the priests got their acts back together, the Levites were actually having to perform some of these duties because the priests weren't being diligent spiritually. And you know what? God has no problem on occasion with saying, okay, if you don't want to be diligent spiritually, then I'll just use him because he's willing to be diligent spiritually. And so God will look for that willing heart and that one who's ready to be used and desiring to serve. And so here the Levites are actually having to take on this responsibility because the priests weren't ready. And the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings, the drink offerings for every burnt offering, and the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place, notice, so suddenly. I mean, think about this. All of this messy, immoral, wicked stuff going on for years and years, and in a month, a spiritual renewal sweeps through the southern kingdom. It's been about a month's time. In a month, the house of the Lord is cleansed. People are confessing. People are returning to worship. There's a move of God's spirit on the hearts of the people and they are with incredible enthusiasm, just passionate about God. And how's that exemplified? They love worship in the Lord and they are just excited about worship. And it says that God prepared the people that it took place suddenly. Because see, it can happen suddenly because when it's not by might or by power, but by the spirit, very suddenly, 
God can bring an incredible paradigm shift spiritually. Would to God that we'd see that. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see suddenly this incredible shift where the Spirit of God moves and wonderful things start to happen? Let's stand together. Let's pray.